0: So a lot of you know that I used to work at the Apple store. Uh, in total, I, I had about uh, five years or so of experience working in, in Apple retail. And man, let me just tell you, Apple products, aren't they just the best, right? Like absolutely the best. Like take, take a, a, an iPhone, for example. Like when you hold a new iPhone in your hand, like you just know that it's, you've got the world's most brilliant uh, engineering and minds and materials that went into the production of that machine, you know, and you're holding all that power right there in your hands. And then the software just works. It's it's beautifully designed. It just melds really well with the software with the hardware in the machine. It's fantastic. I mean, these, these things are wonderful. Like anything else just kind of feels like a toy in your hands. Like I, I don't understand why anyone would want to use a device that's not have branded with an Apple logo on it, right? Now you know if if the things ever if you have another device i I feel bad for you because you know if those things break, like where in the world do you take it you know but with an Apple device, you have these wonderful stores you can take it to, and people treat you very nicely uh you know i 'm sure there's like fine beverages that they offer you as you 're waiting and stuff like that um, now i I, I hope you 're sensing my sarcasm here okay like i'm i 'm trying to make a point uh, i I do enjoy apple stuff. Uh, but you know we are a very um, open, free-thinking place where you can you can use whatever devices you guys want. <laughs> but I'm making a point here. My point is that in our culture, in our culture of consumerism, our culture of, of competitiveness, it's so easy for us to become a divided people. It's so easy for us to become a divided people. In fact, my guess is there's probably two camps of people. As I was. You know, sharing and kind of blabbing on about Apple. Uh, some of you were probably a little bothered by that. You're like, Ugh, "I got this other device here. Like, what in the world is Rick talking about right now?" And then some of you are probably like, "That's right. Apple's the best. Like, oh, I love Apple. That's great." <laughs> but then there's also probably a, a third camp of you that are probably like, "Why can't he just use like a sports analogy? Like any other you know good decent pastor?" And I, I get that. That's that's fair. That's fair. Uh, Well, like I mentioned last week, uh, we're in the season of Epiphany, and right now uh, we're preaching through the 1 Corinthians passages that our Sunday lectionary offers to us. Uh, Last week we talked about the first few verses of of 1 Corinthians, uh, and now we're moving into verses 10 through 18. And as I said last week, Corinth is very similar, the, the church in Corinth is very similar to this church here. It's very similar to Restoration. It's located in a large city, has power and influence. There's big industries that are here, just as there were in Corinth. There's big personalities that are there. There's big powers at play in that city. And also, the church is a young church. When Paul is writing this letter, uh, the church in Corinth is probably about two or three years old or so, which is just the same as us. We're also a young church. So the church in Corinth is a lot like the church uh, here today in Minneapolis, in fact, who knows, maybe they meet with uh, in a community center with wrestling mats and stuff in the corner. You know, it's, we could speculate about these kinds of things. But one difference is that the church in Corinth has some pretty massive, serious problems that are facing this church. Big problems. In fact, if we were to keep turning the pages for, through 1 Corinthians, Paul is just kind of on this litany of issue after issue after issue, and the church is suffering from major, major divisions. So, like I said, I, I want to be clear that these scripture passages uh, that were assigned to us—they come from a, a three-year Sunday morning lectionary. So we'll be revisiting these again in three years. Um, it, I'm not, it, it's not like I picked this because there's a major divisive issue that's tearing our church apart at the moment, and, and any, any situation—nothing like that. However, however, that being said, I don't want to deny the fact. That division is a major issue for Christians. Division is, I mean, all of us probably can tell stories of churches that we've been at where division has just about ripped them apart. So I want us to be aware. I want us to keep our eyes open, especially as we're at this two or three year mark of our church. And I don't want us to be naive about things, because we're not immune to these issues that have been plugging the church literally since the beginning, right? So I want us to, to be on guard, to stay alert. And to know these issues so that when we see these things starting to bubble up, we can be aware of that and take note of that. Jesus tells us to be as innocent as doves and wise as serpents. And I think part of what that means is not to be naive about the power of sin. Because the truth of the matter is that we human beings are a divided people. We use dividing habits. We use dividing language all the time. And furthermore, we have an adversary, the devil, who makes these things worse. In fact, devil means divider. That's devil, divide. You can see the, the connotation there, or the, the connection there. And his strategy is always to stir up division and dissent and confusion. So let's, let's take a look at our, our passage a little bit closer and let us keep our eyes open for ways in which the devil might be seeing seeds of division, potentially even here. So there's, there's three paragraphs uh, to this passage. And first, um, Paul gives a charge to the church. He charges them to be united because there's fierce division that's taking place. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So first of all, Paul addresses the church as brothers. Brothers. Now, I want to be clear that that the term brothers in Greek applies to both brothers and sisters. To men and women, it's it's inclusive. In fact, some English translations will translate this as as brothers and sisters, so I don't want you to read this as excluding half the people in the room. Or, you know, if it was not the women's retreat, it would probably be half the people in the room. But, yeah, whatever. Anyway. (laughs) So anyway, it's an ancient word that means brothers and sisters. And in the ancient world, uh, this was a term that would only be used literally for people who are your actual siblings, either by birth or through adoption. And these would be people who you share family resources with. With your siblings, you share family meals together. You have a common story. You have a common inheritance. And you protect your siblings. You encourage one another. In short, you love your brothers and your sisters. And so it's absolutely radical that in the early church, Followers of Jesus began to refer to one another as brothers and sisters. Through Jesus, a new reality was unfolding. Jesus had inaugurated a new family. To be a Christian means that you radically love one another. And it's no small thing here. It's not a throwaway term when, Jesus, or when Paul refers to the church as brothers here. He's reminding them, you are family. You are family. So act like it. And then he says the same thing in three different ways. He says, agree with one another, don't be divided and be united. Later in this letter, Paul actually refers to himself in relation to the Corinthians as a father. He refers to himself as a father to them. And can't you hear his fatherly voice coming through in this passage right now? He wants so badly for his children to be united with one another. It grieves his father's heart to hear of these, these quarreling, this quarreling that's taking place there. Well, then Paul gets to the heart of the matter. He points out that he has heard reports of trouble in their midst. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, Paul says. Now some of you might be wondering who Chloe is, you know, is, is she some like ancient spy who, who Paul has been like sending out? Like what exactly is going on here? Well, we don't know exactly who it is, but we do know that Paul had several uh, uh, wealthy people, including women, who, who were business owners, and they would fund his ministry, So it's most likely that Chloe is one of these people and she's probably uh, had sent servants or or some of her um, business associates or whomever to Corinth in order to conduct business. And while they're there, they visit the local church and it's not exactly an encouraging situation for them. You know, as soon as the service is over, they go, they, they grab their jackets and go back to Paul and say, you won't believe what's going on over there. And they give Paul a report. There's factions in the church. There's arguing and bickering that's taking place. The people in Corinth are one-upping one another. One says, I follow Paul. Another claims Apollos is their leader. Another says, I follow Cephas, which Cephas, that's, that's the apostle Peter. You might recall, he's got two names. And they're saying that the, the really spiritual people who are there, they're like, well, we follow Jesus. Like that's, you know, they're, they're the ones who say all the right answers in Sunday school class. Now, you can kind of see, um, as, as we look through each of these names, why each leader would kind of have a, a special appeal to different groups of the Corinthians. So you've got Paul, right? So he's, he's the church planter. He's the founder of this church. He's been there before. He knows the people fairly intimately. And Paul is no doubt a brilliant theologian. But he's not exactly the, the same kind of guy who you could spend hours and hours and hours listening to. Paul admits this himself, uh, even in this own passage, he, he knows that he's not necessarily the most interesting and engaging speaker. In fact, elsewhere in the scriptures, we hear a story of when Paul was teaching, and then some dude in the back of the room falls asleep and, and falls out the window, you know, so that's, that's kind of to show you uh, how wonderful of a speaker he is. But undoubtedly, there are people there who adore Paul, who love Paul, who see him as the founder, as, as the true leader of the church. And yeah, sure, he might not be the best speaker, but what he did there for their community was totally transformative, And they remember the zeal in which he preached. They remember the passion that he had when he preached. And they love Paul. And then you have others who say, I follow Apollos. Now, uh, Apollos, he was an exceptional speaker. It would have been amazing to hear him preach. He was a Greek. He had an excellent first-class mind Uh, We're we're told elsewhere that he was an attractive man, he was good-looking, he was easy to follow. In Acts, he's called an eloquent man. Uh, Some scholars, including Martin Luther, speculated that Apollos was the one who wrote the book of Hebrews, which is one of the most sophisticated and poetic and beautiful books in the entire New Testament. So you have the Apollos camp, right? No doubt those folks were probably drawn to his wisdom, his eloquence, yada, yada, yada. Well, then you've got the Cephas camp. That is the Apostle Peter. So you've got people who, and we don't really know for sure if if Peter actually had visited this church. Um, that's up for debate. But certainly, as one of Jesus's closest apostles, everybody knew Peter. If they had known the story of the Gospels, they know exactly who Peter is. They know that he's this burly fisherman, this this uh, probably blue class or blue collar, blue class, blue collar kind of guy. And he might not have the same sort of like spit and polish or, or education as Paul or Apollos. But, I mean, he, he's just a, such a lovable guy, right? Like He's the kind of guy who tells you how it is. He speaks his, his mind almost immediately. You can kind of resonate with that. You, can, you, you like people like that sometimes. Well, then, like I said, you've got those super spiritual people in the mix. The I follow Jesus crowd. Those are the ones who perhaps are just trying to stay away from it all, Maybe. Now, you can probably understand why different people are having different allegiances. We also know that Corinth is a very uh, ethnically diverse uh, city, and so maybe race had something to do with who they were um, aligning themselves with. But you can probably see, again, how you could align with one or another. And maybe you even here, as I was going through some of these leaders, are like, man, I'd, I'd probably be in the, in the Apollos camp. He sounds pretty cool. I, I bet he has an iPhone in his pocket or something. Like He's, he's got to be a great guy. Well, The ironic thing is that none of these leaders would have celebrated the tribalism that was unfolding at Corinth. All of them would have been appalled if they had stepped into the congregation and seen what was happening. In fact, Paul himself, he gets, he gets worked up about this. You can tell he's absolutely enraged, and all of those individuals would have been just as equally enraged as Paul. So Paul goes on in in, uh, this passage, and he compares the wisdom of the world to the wisdom of the cross. And like I said, you can see him getting pretty worked up. He even contradicts himself there. He's like, I didn't baptize any of you. And then he's like, well, like, I kind of baptized you and you and you, you know, like he's getting worked up. He's, He's pretty amped up and bothered by all of this. Now, rather, or we'll, we'll be talking more about how division and the gospel uh, interconnect next week. But today I want to press a little bit more into the matter of division and tribalism that can happen. Because like I said, we Christians are so susceptible to this same kind of quarreling that we see among the Corinthians. We all have our favorite authors, our favorite preachers maybe, our favorite bloggers, um, our favorite theologians. You know, N.T. Wright, Flannery O'Connor, um, I don't know, Dale Bruner, Beth Moore, whomever, like the list can go on and on and on as to people who we love or hate or whatever. And sometimes it's so much easier for us to just toss on our hat with some of these leaders and, and kind of sign off on everything that they say. You know, oh, you know, I, I'm not really clear on this, but man, like whatever Dale Bruner says, like I am all about that. He just, everything he writes should be written with gold ink or whatever. You know, it's so much easier for us to do that. But when we focus on individuals, we begin to exclude those people who disagree with with them. We start to form these camps, right? And we start to elevate our own camp over the others. And we turn it into like a a first priority kind of issue. This happens over and over again. It's so easy for us to get so hyper-focused on individuals or philosophies or even worship styles or preaching styles or whatever. This is an easy thing that happens. But when the foundation of your faith is built on a personality, then we lose sight of Jesus himself. So I think that here at Restoration, I, I think there's actually two potential dangers that are on our horizon. Two potential things that uh, affect and form us as, uh, as who we are as, as an Anglican church plant. So I think there's two dangers that we face into going into um, tribalism. So the first is just the fact that we're Anglican. Now, I I love our our tradition. I love the the global aspect to it. I love the historical rudeness that we have as Anglicans. But even we gospel Anglicans can form camps at times. Are you a high church Anglican? Are you a low church Anglican? Are you an Anglican that leans more towards the the evangelical side of things? Are you an Anglican that leans more towards the Catholic side of things? And it's really easy for us to geek out about the prayer book or vestments or or inter- diocesan politics or whatever. And we so easily form these little camps and stuff. You know, it's it's an easy, tempting thing for us to do. And then we argue about the ways that things are really supposed to be done or the way things aren't supposed to be done, so on and so forth. Now, don't get me wrong. I love our tradition. I wouldn't be standing here if I didn't adore and love and treasure our tradition. But I think that our traditions... Uh, Well, the reason why I love our tradition is because I think that Anglicanism, and again, I'm slightly biased here, but I think it's the best way to enjoy the depths and the riches of the gospel. I think our traditions, when functioning correctly, actually illuminate the gospel. I've heard it said before that that a tradition, no matter what tradition you pick, it's kind of like a chalice, and the gospel is a fine wine. Well, I think that, that we get to experience the complexities and the beauty and the flavor of the gospel when Anglicanism is functioning well. I love the formative habits of liturgy. I love worshiping along the historical church, the global church. I love the church calendar and the colors and the seasons and the gospel emphases that come with each one of those. But if we, if those things consume our attention more than the gospel itself, then we've lost sight of it all. If our tradition leads to tribalism, then we're doing it all wrong. We're doing it all wrong. The devil's just using those things to stir us up with one another and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's one danger that I think that we can fall into. The second danger is the fact that we're a church plant. And and like I said before, at this two or three year mark, there's a lot of decisions that we have to be making here pretty quickly. And it's easy for us to fall on different sides of how these decisions are made. So hypothetically, and this is not... This is not happening right now. But let's say hypothetically, don't get your hopes up. Hypothetically, let's say we were contacted by a church and they wanted to give us a building. Like, let's just say that that were to happen, right? Well, there are many of us here in this room who absolutely love and adore this community center. Like, this is is a great place. It's reasonably priced. Many of you love how approachable and how unintimidating this place is. A lot of you love just how how, uh, accessible this location is, uh, how you drive by and your kids point at this place and say, we were baptized there. That's our church. Like, that's an amazing thing, right? A lot of you enjoy the satisfaction of coming in here into an empty gymnasium and transforming it into a beautiful house of worship. The children's ministry is absolutely transformed back there. It's built every week from the ground up and the satisfaction, the holy pride that comes with that is a meaningful thing for you. In fact, maybe that's part of the reason why you're here. You don't mind the basketball goals or the wrestling mats because it reminds you that we are a church in the community, with the community, for the community. And some of you, you also just long for the day in which we can have our own building, in which we can have our own building, a place where we can commission our own artists, our own craftsmen, of which we have many, to build beautiful um, elements of the service or the room or, or anything that would just help tell the story of who we are and the mighty things that God has done in our midst and you, learn, you, you yearn for that. You also want a place where we can meet on a weekly basis and maybe have more adult education or more ministries that take place for the community and your heart is just drawn to that idea. You know, it, so I hope what you're seeing is that it's, it's not too hard to think of even a decision like that leading to potentially dividing our own young congregation. So these are things that I want us to be aware of. Because before we are Anglicans with a beautiful tradition, before we we're church planters with a heart for mission and evangelism, before, before those things, we are under the name of Jesus Christ. We are a people who are committed to the cross of Christ The one who, even though when we were sinners squabbling with one another, stepped down from heaven and walked among us and paid for all of our guilt and shame on the cross. None of us should boast in anything else but the power of the cross. I'm getting a little bit into next week. But that's us. We are are a cross-focused, cross-centric people. And let none of these other aspects of who we are get ahead of that and our love and our adoration of Jesus Christ himself. So in a few, moment, in a few moment, moments, we're going to be coming here to this table behind me, this beautiful, holy, sacred table. And we're going to come together for a family meal, a family for brothers and for sisters, a family meal. We are going to invite all of those who are part of the household of God to come together and partake in this. And let us be reminded of our union with one another. Not just our union with, with us here in this room, but our union with brothers and sisters across the globe who are doing the same thing right now. We're being, right now, we're being united with the, the women's ministry, or with, the, um, with those on the women's retreat uh, who are also enjoying communion today also. So let us gather together as brothers and sisters and may we be of one mind. Let us pray together. Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, you said that the world would know who your disciples are and the way in which we love one another. So I pray, God, that we would be good listeners of one another. May we hear the ways in which you are moving in our lives. May we be good at telling the stories of what you are doing in our lives. And God, we confess that it is so easy for us to get divided with one another. And we lay that down before you, Lord Jesus Christ. We confess to you that we can be a divisive people. So, Lord Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would visit us. I pray, God, that you would give us grace and power to walk forward as a united people, as a people of one mind and of one judgment. God, protect us from the attacks of the devil, the one who wants to divide us, and keep us one, Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.